Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we go over investing strategies, books, and philosophies to get you to where you want to be in life. Today we're going to do a brief discussion on the lessons that I learned from my Florida properties. Like I mentioned before, when I first got into the real estate investing game, I was really gung-ho about buying single-family rentals, renting them out, getting the cash flow, doing a cash out refi, maybe sell them later, 1031 exchange to do something bigger, and just buy property maybe once every year. And here's how it went. So in the very beginning, I had no connections. I had no idea where I wanted to go. By going through a lot of real estate meetups, people always talk about what are the opportunities out of California that you can invest in that satisfy, quote, the 1% rule. And the 1% rule, for those of you who don't know, is when the purchase price, sorry, the rent price is about 1% of the purchase price. So for a place that rents for a thousand bucks a month, I should be able to get that property for $100,000 or less. And so a common place that people kept saying is Jacksonville, Florida, Ohio, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Atlanta. Basically, I looked at all those places and I said, of all the areas and their natural disasters, I don't like tornadoes too much. I don't like snow. I don't want my pipes frozen. But hurricanes? Yeah, okay, I can deal with hurricanes. So I chose Jacksonville, Florida. I went on the message boards on biggerpockets.com and I found an agent really quickly that had the same mentality as me. After a couple of phone calls, he explained the area, the up and coming neighborhoods, yada yada. And very quickly, you put in a couple offers for some properties that could rent for about $1,000 that were under $100,000 purchase price. We finally got to one property that needed a lot of maintenance, but already had a tenant inside for I think $950 a month. And so they couldn't sell it to a regular homeowner because a tenant is already in place. You can't just kick out a tenant. So I said, sure, I'll get the property with the inherited tenant. And because, oh, the roof is bad. Oh, because whatever, you need some, some maintenance. I offered them a purchase price, kind of lowball, of $77,000. Cash, right? No financing. And at the time, they were like, eh. But I said, look, I'll pitch in and pay for your closing costs as well. I'll pay for your agent closing costs, I'll pitch for my agent closing costs, transfer fees, everything else too. So my all-in price may be 82.5. And during that time, I was thinking, all right, I'll buy this with cash and then I'll immediately do some kind of cash out refi and show that the property's true value is like $125,000 and get all my capital back and then some and repeat and do it again. Well, in reality, that's not how things work. Even though I put down 82.5 to pay for the whole thing, the bank said, well, technically your purchase price is only $77,000. We can only finance you 75% that's $77,000. So I was like, oh man, that sucks. So a lesson learned. Uh, don't always, don't assume that you can do everything you hear on the podcast. Make sure you can, you can do it first. And honestly, it's really hard to do cash out refis if you're not seasoned, which means you have owned the property for six months or more and... You know, it's actually really hard to do it if you're out of state and you don't really know a banker or unless you know a banker as well. 
And closing costs, man, closing costs will kill you in small deals. Like every time you do a, uh, like a refi or something like that, it costs you about $1,000 to $2,000 because you have to order an appraisal, you have to pay origination fees, you have to pay whatever miscellaneous fees. And you know, on a large deal, like a $2 million property, 2,000 bucks, who cares? It's dropping the bucket. But for a $100,000 property, dude, $2,000 is quite a bit. So it's not really worth it to assume you could just buy a property and cash out refi whenever you want because closing costs will kill you in these small deals. And basically I learned that almost all of the fixed costs, they hurt a lot more on these small deals. Like they actually matter. For example, a new AC is around 3,500 bucks. A new roof, five to 10K. And those, those things happen all the time. You need a new AC. You do need a new roof once in a while and they're gonna kill your whole year's profit. I also learned that there are good and bad tenants every, like everywhere. So in good areas and in bad, don't think that investing in a good area will just get rid of all of your headaches. And from that one experience, I learned that closing costs really, really matter. So if you see something with deferred maintenance and you complain to the seller, you say, look, I know it's gonna cost 10 grand in repairs for this. Do not, I repeat, listen closely, do not ask for a reduction in purchase price, okay? What you do is you ask for money back at closing. You want credit at closing towards that repair. For example, if you have a property for 100,000 and you know there's 10 grand in repair, do not say, let me buy this property from, from you for $90,000. You say, I'm going to keep the $100,000 purchase price. You're going to credit me back 10 grand at closing. To the seller, it makes no difference. The seller will not have to pay money out of his own pocket. If they're broke, it won't matter because it comes out of the purchase price. And they don't get taxed more because that credit, you know, gets reduced from their profit of whatever they sold the house for. It doesn't affect them, but it affects you a lot. Why? Because imagine this. You do have to pair that roof no matter what, right? So if you had paid only $90,000, then you would have to come up with $10,000 of cash to repair that house or repair that roof. Or you can just get 10 grand back during closing to repair the roof, but you only put in 20% of that 10 grand. Now, for those of you who are not um, that quick on math, basically, when you get a mortgage, you put down 20%. The other 80% is financed. So basically, for every, like every $10 of purchase price, you only put down two. So for the extra 10 grand from 90 grand to 100 grand that you're buying, you're only putting in an extra $2,000. Okay? You finance the other 8,000, but you only put down two. And you got back 10 grand right away. Versus, okay, you put down less money to buy the property, two grand less, but now you have to come up with $10,000 to repair the roof. So basically, you're out of pocket eight grand instead of financing that eight grand into your loan. And that's why I always say, put it on the loan, pay it off slowly with a 30-year amortized loan. It's, it's much better to do that than to waste your capital, because that's like your limiting factor to doing more deals, your cash. Cash is king, right? They say all the time.
So one more time, if there's a problem, always put that money towards a credit to closing and not a reduction of purchase price. Okay, so another discussion is, why am I not interested in buying any more single family homes to rent out? Now, one of the problems is it's not scalable. You know, for every home, there's a higher maintenance to rent ratio. Like I said, you're gonna have problems, you're gonna have maintenance issues, and those issues happen all the time and they kill your entire cash flow for the year. So in order to you kind of remove that problem, you need a lot of different properties to kind of spread that damage out. Because sometimes a house will perform very well. Other times that one house will have issues. So if you have a lot of homes, then yeah, overall, you'll still be up. But it's also not scalable because imagine if you had 30 different single family homes and you wanted to sell all of them at once. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck selling all 30 homes at once. If you guys know what 1031 exchanges are, that's when you can sell a property, take the capital gains that you made and roll it over to the next property you buy without having to pay taxes. Like you defer it till later when you finally get out of the real estate game and you decide to pay all your taxes. But there's a time limit to that. You can't just sell your house, hold on to the cash, sell another house, hold on to the cash, and then finally buy that huge property that you wanted. It doesn't work that way. It, you basically need to identify the next property you, you buy within 30 days, or sorry, within three months, and then you need to close on that property within six months, like overall. So yeah, imagine selling 30 properties and trying to buy a big one. Like, there's no way. In, in California, our average days on market is ridiculous. It's like 19 days, okay? But other, everywhere else, like three months is the average. Sometimes six months. You know, your property's sitting there for six months. And during that time, are you going to rent the house out too? I mean, if you rent it out, then people may not want to buy your house. So it's going to be empty for six months while you're selling it. If a hurricane hits Jacksonville and all of my single family homes have issues, yeah, that's a lot of maintenance costs. That's a lot of roofs to fix. Another thing is I'm pretty lazy. I don't want to have to deal with all the paperwork that comes with owning so many individual properties. For every property, there's at least three pieces of paperwork that you have to constantly think about. One is the yearly insurance payments. Two is the yearly property tax payments that you have to make to the county. And three is obviously the mortgage payments. And while I do have most of those on automatic payments, you still have to keep track on them just in case you, know, you miss a payment. So imagine if I had 30 houses that's 90 pieces of paperwork that I had to think about every single year. And because only once a year too, you always forget your passwords. It's, it's such a pain in the butt. But imagine if you had one 30-unit apartment complex instead. Now, I only have to look at one building. It's a lower maintenance to rent ratio. For example, an AC blows out. The AC for the whole building may be $15,000 but you're making 20 grand a month gross revenue, right? So that's not even one month's worth of gross revenue versus a single family home, I'm renting it out for a thousand bucks, but my AC is 3,500. So that's like three and a half months worth of rent for just one AC. And if I wanna sell all 30 units, boom, you sell with one property. And I only have three pieces of paperwork 
I have one mortgage payment, I have one insurance policy, and I have one property tax statement every year. So much worth it. So much more worth it. Another thing is with single-family homes, you have to, the value of the property is purely based on comparables. How is the neighborhood doing? How are individual homes in the neighborhood selling that are comparable to what you have? So you have no real control over the value of your property. But for multifamily, you can do force appreciation. You can make the property run more efficiently. You can have a higher tenant base. You can increase rents. And then the value of the property is worth more. So I hope you enjoyed another lesson in uh, my thought process on why I'm not doing any more single family homes and some lessons that I learned. Again, to go back, the number one thing is if you're buying a single family home or any kind of property in general, you always wanna focus on getting credit back at closing versus reducing purchase price. That is the number one key because uh, closing costs will kill you and you want as much capital on hand as possible, period. Always, that's always the case. And another thing is single family homes are probably good to start with, but multifamily is the way to go because eventually you're going to hit a point where you're dealing with too many small properties. All right. Well, have a great day, everybody. And this was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Thanks.